Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Lore Party. The podcast that explores the stories, characters, and universes behind some of our favorite video games. I'm Leo. And I'm Caleb. And today we are talking about the Lutesses. We will talk about the Lutesses. We have talked about the Lutesses. We soon will have had talked about the Lutesses. Oh my god, let's not. But we will. Shout out for today's episode idea to my friend Max, who's hopefully listening to this. This was your idea, Max. I hope you're happy. We're finally doing the episode you wanted us to do. And just as a as a quick reminder, we have to do this every time. I'm sorry. With all of our Bioshock episodes, this discussion is so spoiler heavy. We are talking about the heart of the game that you don't really realize until the very end of the game. So if you haven't played through the game yet, we so strongly recommend you do. And then come back and listen to this. Like, add this to your listen later list, you know? And Bioshock Infinite, like, it's such a good game, but it's a game where so much of its power just comes from its, like, skill that its plot twists come into play. So, like, if you haven't played it, play it. Totally. So... One of the things we should probably do, just as a refresher for everybody, the Lutesses, we should probably explain who they are, right? So the Lutesses are, like, quote-unquote twins. They aren't actually twins or even related to each other directly. Kind of. The the Lutesses are scientists who discovered the ability to travel in between alternate dimensions and alternate realities. And what they are is they are two different versions of the same individual who managed to contact themselves from a different reality. One reality um, in which this individual was male and one reality in which this individual was female. Robert and Rosalind Lutess. In a lot of ways, the Lutess twins are, are the plot. I mean, really, directly, Rosalind is the reason that Columbia floats or that it doesn't fall, so to speak. And Robert is the reason that Booker is brought into that universe and into that kind of dimension. So for you, how did your opinion of them change as you sort of learned more about them, right? Like as the game began, you're introduced to them on a boat. (laughs) And then later on, they're becoming more and more enigmatic, but you're also learning a lot more about them. Did you see them as antagonistic? You know, at any point were you like, oh my God, these are the villains? Or did you kind of the whole time understand them as sort of protagonist beings? I think when I first played the game, they were really hard to place. Like, their motivations are so unclear. Whether you're interpreting them as friends or foes isn't always obvious. But A, as the game goes on, and B, and this is the part where I just kind of say, like, I first played this game six years ago. I've played replayed the game at least once every year or two at this point. Like, nice. I've actually played through this game quite a few times. Very nice. 
I, I would see them especially now as very sympathetic and very, like, redemptive. Because the aspects of them that um caused a lot of the harm in Colombia wasn't them trying to harm people, but them trying to find truth. They're scientists. They invented a lot of the technology that caused a lot of this bad stuff to happen. And they obeyed their employer, who was funding their ability to find all this, and it wasn't until after the fact that they realized how much damage they were doing to how many people. Have you seen The Wind Rises, the Miyazaki film? I actually have not. Oh my gosh. First of all, just great movie. But for anybody who's seen it, you'll kind of know where I'm going with this. It's about an airplane designer who's designing airplanes, but he's employed by the Japanese military during World War II. And for him, it's not a matter of how can I make more deadly airplanes. For him, they say, we need this airplane to have this big, powerful gun on it. And he's like, how am I going to counteract that weight? How do I deal with the drag? And it's all mechanics and it's all the joy of overcoming this thing. And when ultimately that airplane mechanic is faced with the reality that his inventions are killing people, it's really hard for him to deal with. So this is an interesting thing that I kind of see in a couple of different movies and games, the idea of the scientist who is fighting this battle against the mystery, right? And it's that desire to expand one's knowledge of the world that then results in people like Comstock suddenly having the ability to, you know, have control over everybody and become viewed as a prophet and, you know, is in total power. Um, and I totally agree. I think that they are sympathetic and protagonistic. But someone online pointed out, if they successfully eliminate Booker, or if they successfully lead to the baptismal kind of drowning of Booker, that erases the universes that have Comstock in it, which then removes the fact that they are connected, right? It actually destroys their connection, which Rosalind is very clear that she doesn't want to split up with her brother. Like, she doesn't want this her brother, her twin, her herself, they enjoy kind of working together and they enjoy having each other. So the fact that they're planning on ending this world that they enjoy where they're together, I think is a pretty good sign that they are ultimately on the right side of the fence, right? If we're going to put a fence mm -hmm. up. <laughs> it's an interesting aspect of that I hadn't thought. Um, there is one thing that I think kind of complicates our perspective of their morality, though. That's the whole idea of the the how many bookers they've gone through yeah. throughout yeah. this throughout this plot. Um, I mean, if you look at the um heads or tails sequence fairly early in the game, right? Like it just indicates that they're keeping track of whether Booker's coin lands on heads or tails. It's obvious they've been through many different iterations of this story. In fact, there's even a sequence. Um, if you die early in the game before you meet Elizabeth. There's a sequence where you go back through a door, which low-key indicates that um, the Lutesses are just switching to a different version of Booker that just happened to not die at that part. <laughs> right, right. And then if you um, combine that with, say, the sequence when you first get the repulsive field around you, when you first are given the shield potion, they remark how interesting it is that it didn't kill you suggesting that there's probably multiple different realities where you made it that far 
and were immediately killed on drinking the potion that they handed you. Right. And they just switched to a different reality until they found one in which you didn't immediately die, because they knew the versions of you that had a field around you had a slightly higher chance of surviving otherwise. And to me, that, I think, calls other aspects of their emotions in question, where (laughs) how many versions of you did they literally poison? Well, and you, you actually bring up a good point, because... Let's not pretend that if they didn't drag Booker into this new universe to confront Comstock, like, Booker could not have followed Anna without Robert's intervention, right? Like, Robert and, effectively, Robert and Rosalind are cherry-picking Bookers that they think might do well and dragging them into this reality and just, like, letting them die. So you're right. I mean, it's like every Booker that dies and every Booker that failed was a booker that they sort of tore out of his reality. And ultimately, again, I think we, we we look at the means. We look at the fact that there are technically infinite bookers, so they can do that until the cows come home, and you'll still have bookers for days. Uh, but their ultimate goal is a kind of reality in which Comstock doesn't exist, so that this sort of moral question doesn't even have to be asked. <laughs> like all of those bookers that they've removed will have not been removed if Comstock never existed. Yeah, like, I don't know, it's it's really interesting and it's fairly complicated. In any event, like, you also do have to remember the number of different times that they do directly aid Booker in different ways. Like, as much as there's presumably um, realities in which they lead him astray, like, they are for the most part, visibly allies. Every time they interact with him, he he usually gets either a useful tool, such as his shield or a key, or um some other form of information that allows him to proceed with Elizabeth. Which sort of brings up an interesting question. Like, there are, there are times in, in other games um, that sometimes someone's like, it's dangerous to go alone, take this, and you never learn that person's like name or their story. Do you think the Lutesses kind of fall too close to that they are purely a game mechanic to keep the game going? Or do you kind of feel like they fit into this overall universe really comfortably? Or kind of how? where do you fall on that? That is an interesting question. And that's something that even like now I get torn about. Like, it's really a question of like, how naturally do they fit into the story versus how much are they plot contrivances for the sake of building foreshadowing and for the sake of introducing other mechanics and i feel like it comes down directly to the question of do they feel like they belong do they feel like a natural part of the story and universe well i'll 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 back you up for a second and i'll 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 say because i'm right there with you there are times when they show up and they're like well it's a shame you need lady comstock's help good thing you can convince her with these three things good luck adventurer and it feels so contrived I, I think I see where you're going, but ultimately I think there's definitely credence to they are very much a video game element. At the same time, I think that their almost tendency to feel like they're out, a little bit out of place in the story may in a lot of ways be kind of their point, if that makes sense. Like, that's mm. the idea, is this is a universe in which they don't belong, But at the same time, this is also a universe into which Booker doesn't belong. This is a universe into which um, Elizabeth slash Anna doesn't belong. Like, um, to quote Rick and Morty, 
nobody exists on purpose, nobody belongs anywhere, we're all going to die. Like, their, <laughs> their sense of sticking out and not belonging where they are is the thing that makes them feel like they belong in this universe whose entire point is to remind the player that nothing belongs. Hey, it's Abu. I'm a producer and host here at Lore Party. This is the time I'd normally take to talk about sponsors, so maybe I'd tell you about that particular mattress company, or I'd let you know about this delivery service that brings easy-to-cook meals right to your doorstep. But since we don't have any sponsors, I figured I would just take this time to tell you about the series that I produce here on the show. My co-host Brett and I produce episodes about The Witcher. We deep dive into the lore and the stories and the characters of both the games and the books. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, be sure to check out the Lore Party feed and look for the Witcher episodes. Okay, enough of me interrupting this episode, back to what you were actually here to listen to. They they mention it a couple of times. This is a game of probability for them. They're like trying to find the variables that are affectable and trying to find the things that are constant. But also, God, I love that early uh, that early quote where she goes, well, you should ask him. I think he'd be more interested in getting there. And he goes, no, there's no point. She goes, why? He goes, he doesn't row. And she goes, he doesn't row. And he goes, no, he doesn't row. And that, that shift of uh, the shift of emphasis, right? This happens throughout the game where uh, where Robert will say something like, I don't do that, or he doesn't do that. And he really emphasizes that. And even the subtitles have it in all capitals because they're identifying something that happens every single time without any variance. It's not a variable. It's a constant. So all of that's to say, I think that they are still experimenting in a way that it makes them, for me, a more believable part of this continuous world. It also ties a little bit into their sense of um, the way they deal with semantics with each other. They're constantly correcting each other on their tenses and semantics. <laughs> yeah. There's um, one point where they directly say in um, the graveyard when they're talking about Lady Comstock, lives, lived, will live, dies, died, will die that the only difference between past, present, and future is semantics. And they even say, if we could perceive time as it truly was, what reason would grammar professors have to get out of bed in the morning? It's so good. It's so funny and such clever writing. And also, are they saying that from, like, firsthand experience? Like, were they blown out of space-time as well as, like, this set linear time path? Because maybe they're they're saying, like, wow, grammar's really interesting now that we're not constrained by time anymore <laughs> i can imagine like what grammar what that has to do to your opinion of grammar not having any connection of time it also becomes really interesting um the full implications on what they and their conversations offer on the game's exploration of the nature not just of time and grammar but also of identity so they're talking about lives lived will live dies died will die um life and death are two identical sides of the same coin one always becomes the other and just because one happens later sequentially doesn't make it any less being at any given time i as the player started asking myself questions like what elements of the game have to be the way they are i mean 
there's there's even this this thought of there are multiple scenes in which the Lutesses show up and are kind of just dicking around and are kind of like I don't know like wasting time or like joking with you and in those moments are they really just having fun or are they doing something else like they discovered that if they don't distract you at that moment with their sort of weird quips and get you talking about them and thinking about them with Elizabeth maybe some other terrible thing would happen but I found myself questioning like what are the differences that led you know Rosalind and Robert to such different destinations and obviously a lot of it I think comes down to Booker versus Comstock in this in this moment of baptism but the there was a there was a on, online conversation on a on a forum on a place where people come together to talk about things where someone pointed out that a lot of their personality differences where Rosalind seems a little bit more like she's ironclad she knows what she wants to do she wants Robert there with her by her side and she's going to figure this stuff out yeah Robert on the other hand is a lot more um like he's remorseful about their actions in the past, his actions in the past, more willing to experiment and look for other angles, other ways that what they're trying to do could be approached. In discussions, you find out that he's ultimately the one who wants to be using DeWitt to stop Comstock and um, to end Comstock, while Rosalind has no interest in stopping him. And that's that's what's really interesting is despite them being essentially the same person, despite them having so many similarities, like there's one point when he even says, like, isn't it weird how we finish each other's sentences? It would be weirder if we didn't. But yet, despite that, there's still very clear contrasts in their personalities. Um, And I think a prevailing theory behind that that I think is really interesting to explore is the extent to which um, being born different genders Mm may have directly influenced their personalities. Because you also have to remember, this game is set in, what, 1912? Yeah, and I mean, even... I mean, I have friends right now who are, like, millennials, who are going into fields of science, math, and computing, who are women, who face all the ex- these extra challenges because they're women in this field that's dominated by men. And historically, you look back at inventors and scientists and physicists and biologists who are women who got who did so much and many of them had stuff taken from them and credit taken from them and it's awful. So you imagine uh, Robert who wanted to be a physicist and grew up and was very similar to Rosalind in a lot of ways and ended up discovering some of the same things, discovering the Lutest field and all that. You know, he, he didn't have to fight as many battles to justify his interest in science as maybe Rosalind would have. It's it's the funniest thing about all this, by the way, is that maybe the writers didn't even think about this. <laughs> like maybe they like, yeah. maybe they're just this like, well, it's funny. It's funny writing. And this then, could all be fan conjecture. Like, yeah, it could be. It could be. But I think also if we accept the era that this is in, and that this is a vaguely America like place that Columbia launched from, ultimately I think we have to accept that part of the world building is setting a time and place. And understanding that characters come from that time and place. And so Rosalind's childhood, inadvertently, she is, without any conjecture, a young woman, very young woman, interested in physics and being a physicist in, like, the early 20th century in America, which is going to lead to adversity, you know, just kind of ubiquitously, I feel pretty confident in saying that. And it also does beg interesting questions. 
if Rosalind as a female scientist would have had to go to slightly more unconventional uh, methods to get funding, including, unlike Robert, <laughs> right. she may have had to reach out to the bizarre cult leader right, right, to secure funding and work with him to build his floating city. But then even more so, um, this would also explain if all versions of reality that result in Columbia being made are versions where our Lutess is forced to team up with Comstock and it's always Rosalind because um, her being female is the thing that forces her to seek him out as a source of income, then that would also explain why despite having the cartoonish levels of racism that you would expect in a game set in um, exaggerated 1912 semi-America, right, um, right. it doesn't necessarily have the same cartoonish levels of sexism. Right, right, right. Like there's, there is such clear bigotry towards race and homosexuality in the game, but there are like female officers and women in power and women in politics. And it's almost like, wow, they're pretty progressive. But then you realize, oh, Comstock's heir that Robert brought to them is a female. And so obviously if he's saying women can't be in power, that doesn't necessarily set up his lineage well because his mm -hmm. heir is a female. But also this scientist that they have giant statues built of around town is also a female. And so that complicates things. So, you know, someone pointed out that at no point do the Lutesses at no point do the Lutesses talk about the possibility of a female Booker. And a big part of this is like what led to Booker being the way he is, is his experience being drafted into the military and his and sort of his experience that could only ever really happen to him as a man. So there are no worlds in which Comstock arose out of a female booker. Like I said, all of this is fan conjecture and as such, but it's just, it's such an interesting train of thought and such an interesting thing to think about. And all of this conjecture and thought is only really possible because of the complicated yet fluid nature of the Lutesses in this game. I mean, the decision in a video game to play with time travel and multiverses, it's a bold one, and you're taking on a lot of challenges, but I think uh, we've done a pretty good job of holding back on just blatant praise, but I'd like to kind of say as we wrap up, like, God, what a great game, great writing, really interesting, and really satisfying to dig into a second time, you know, after years away from it. The recommendation to all the people who haven't played Bioshock Infinite to play it, like, would always still stand. Um, hopefully doesn't, because I'm hoping if you haven't played it, you didn't listen this far in. <laughs> but for those right. but for those who have played it, like, replay it. It holds up. It, it has more replay value than any other game I've played in a long time. And to that point, if you haven't played it and you just listened, totally fine. No judgment. Thanks for listening. A uh, little bit of judgment. A little bit of judgment. <laughs> it's a, a, a tiny, tiny little bit of judgment. But definitely, if you get the chance, play it. It's fun. The mechanics are fun. Troy Baker kills it with the voice acting. Like, the whole thing is great. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode. We want to thank you for tuning in and being a part of this show. Be sure to connect with us on Twitter at lore underscore party and leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.